from PRX. Stew. Stew. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Oh, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've I'm got not. a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, what he wants to do is bust up that stereotype of the Uncle Tom. No one understood what I was feeling inside. I didn't even understand what I was feeling inside. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay sit. There he is again. Bigger! The woman screamed, and the tiny one-room apartment galvanized in violent action. Bigger Thomas, 20 years old, lived on the south side of Chicago in a one-room apartment that he shared with his mother, sister, and brother. And in the opening scene of Native Son... A very large rat. Give me that skillet, buddy, he asked quietly, not taking his eyes from the rat. Buddy extended his hand. Bigger caught the skillet and lifted it high in the air. The rat scurried across the floor, searching for an escape route. Bigger aimed and let the skillet fly with a heavy grunt. There was a shattering of wood as the box caved in. The woman screamed and hid her face in her hands. Bigger tiptoed forward and peered. I got him! He muttered, his clenched teeth bared in a smile. By God, I got him. Bigger had killed the rat, but as far as his mother was concerned, it was one of the few things he'd ever done right. She blamed Bigger for their miserable lives. Bigger, honest, you're the most no-countest man I've ever seen in all my life. You done told me that a thousand times, he said, not looking around. Well, I'm telling you again, and mark my word, some of these days you're going to sit down and cry. From the opening pages of Native Son, we pretty much know this story will not go well for Bigger Thomas. He hangs around plotting robberies, roughing up his friends. He's a nasty piece of work, and a violent dead end seems inevitable. You think I don't know what you boys is doing? But I do. And the gallows is at the end of the road you traveling, boy. I'm Kurt Anderson, and today in Studio 360's series American Icons the novel Native Son by Richard Wright. In March of 1940, Gone with the Wind was in movie theaters, and How Green Was My Valley was at the top of the bestseller list. And then the Book of the Month Club dropped Native Son on millions of unsuspecting Americans. It was unlike anything they'd read before. If you think about black culture prior to that book, and if you think about, you know, the the Harlem Renaissance, it was all about the likability of black people. Writer and performer Carl Hancock Rux. It was all about saying, you know, I can write, I can dance, I can sing, I'm like you, I speak as well as you, I can dress as well as you, I can be rich, you know, I can be a part of the American dream. And Richard Wright was actually saying, let's stop asking for permission, let's stop selling ourselves, let's stop apologizing. If you're angry and you know it, clap your hands, you know, (laughs) and think that is in a way what he's doing with Bigger Thomas. The character is not begging white society for acceptance or acknowledgement or, or understanding necessarily. And that is, well, there's a bomb there. You know, that just blows some things away. What do you imagine Bigger Thomas looked like? Oh, boy. Oh, yeah, I can describe Bigger Thomas. I know Bigger Thomas. <laughs> Where to begin? Wow, Bigger Thomas. Bigger Thomas. Bigger Thomas. Is... 
A big guy. Medium height, rather stocky. More of a farmhand kind of build. Probably not very good diet. Didn't know his own strength. And just this very sort of silent, quiet, aimless, troubled, bored, brooding nature. As a product of his environment, he didn't have a lot of options. There was no option for education. He has to portray himself to his peers as a very strong figure. I imagine a threatening expression on his face. He becomes a bully. But under that, underneath that, deep inside, there was probably a great indecipherable swamp of lack of love. He's filled with a lot of rage, shame, desires, tension, with no outlet for expressing himself. He doesn't know where to place it. There, there was this something bursting to get out, and it often came out in violent expressions. Bigger Thomas. Bigger Thomas. Bigger Thomas begins to believe what the society says about him, and he begins to act it out. With the publication of Native Son and its explosion of unrepentant violence by a black man, white America for the first time acknowledged the rage that had been building up since slavery. And America liked the novel. In just the first three weeks, more than 200,000 copies were sold, the equivalent of half a million today. Bigger Thomas became one of the most infamous names in fiction. It had been the better part of a century since an African-American character had gotten quite so big. In 1940, who is the best-known African-American man in American fiction? title character from Harriet Beecher Stowe's sentimental novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. University of Florida professor Trish Travis. It's Uncle Tom's Cabin that Native Son is a response to. In Native Son, what he wants to do is bust up that stereotype of the Uncle Tom once and for all. He wants literally to create a bigger Thomas, someone who will be bigger in the American mind and in the African-American literary tradition than Uncle Tom, the pious, singing, happy slave who is beaten to death by a white overseer while he prays to Jesus for help. The plot of Native Son is set in motion when Bigger Thomas gets a job through the local welfare office. He's hired to be the chauffeur for a rich, white, progressive family, the Daltons. His first night working for them, he's asked to drive the daughter, Mary Dalton, to a lecture at her university. But Mary's got other plans. She convinces Bigger to take her and her boyfriend, Jan, to Ernie's Kitchen Shack. That's on the south side of Chicago, deep inside the uh, black community. Richard Wesley is a playwright and screenwriter. He adapted Native Son as a film in the 1980s. A lot of the people who are in the chicken shack are people whom he knows. And, uh, of course, his girlfriend, Bessie, is going to be there. Thus quadrupling the the difficulty and awkwardness. and, uh, and, And now he has to sit at a table where... 
you know, Mary and Jan, you know, want to be friendly and they want to be like, we're just ordinary and, we, you know, we want to be hip. Yeah. And Bigger's sitting there like, oh, God. <laughs> you know, let, was... let, let's listen to the scene. Bigger, where were you born? Mississippi. That's Matt Dillon as Jan, Victor Love as Bigger, and Elizabeth McGovern as Mary. We feel that everyone should be treated fairly, and that means everybody, all people. There's a lot of white people in the world. We want to be friends with you, Bigger, really get to know you. There are certain lines he knows that should not be crossed. And Jan and Mary are forcing him across those lines at every turn. It's okay, Bigger, you'll get used to us. (laughs) They don't realize how much they have compromised him and how compromised he actually feels. He doesn't articulate it, and they they don't grasp it. And there's just so much that they don't know the three of them, that they just don't know. And on top of that, they don't know anything about each other. But here they are. When the evening ends, Bigger finds himself even more compromised. He drops Jan off and takes Mary home. She's so drunk she can't walk, so Bigger carries her upstairs to her bedroom. And just a reminder, this is a book intended for a mature audience. He lifted her and laid her on the bed. Something urged him to leave at once, but he leaned over, excited, looking at her face in the dim light, not wanting to take his hands from her breasts. She tossed and mumbled sleepily. He tightened his fingers on her breasts, kissing her again, feeling her move toward him. He was aware only of her body now. His lips trembled. Then he stiffened. The door behind him had creaked. He turned and a hysterical terror seized him, as though he were falling from a great height in a dream. A white blur was standing by the door, silent, ghost-like. It filled his eyes and gripped his body. It was Mrs. Dalton. He wanted to knock her out of his way and bolt from the room. But instead, Bigger froze. Mrs. Dalton was blind, so if he could just stay still, she might not realize he was there at all. Mary mumbled and tried to rise again. Frantically, he caught a corner of a pillow and brought it to her lips. He had to stop her from mumbling, or he would be caught. Mrs. Dalton was moving slowly toward him, and he grew tight and full, as though about to explode. Mary's fingernails tore at his hands, and he caught the pillow and covered her entire face with it, firmly. Mary's body surged upward, and he pushed down upon the pillow with all his weight, determined that she must not move or make any sound that would betray him. Finally, Mrs. Dalton left, not realizing that Bigger was in the room. He looked at the shadowy bed and remembered Mary as some person he had not seen in a long time. Then convulsively, he sucked his breath in and... Huge words formed slowly, ringing in his ears. She's dead. The reality of the room fell from him. The vast city of white people that sprawled outside took its place. She was dead and he had killed her. We're hearing the novel Native Son, read for us by Jamie Hector, best known for playing Marlo Stanfield on The Wire.
When Native Son was published in 1940, critics compared it to The Grapes of Wrath and Crime and Punishment. It was called the finest novel as yet written by an American Negro. And it made 31-year-old Richard Wright rich and famous. He never had a regular job after the success of Native Son. All of his money was made on his writing. Jerry Ward is editor of the Richard Wright Encyclopedia. So, you know, he's lionized, he's recognized as the black writer. Because in terms of literary politics in the time, you could only have one black writer. But being rich and famous in 1940s New York City was not enough to protect him from racism. He's in New York, right? And because he's married to a Jewish woman, he has trouble buying a house. They have to use a ruse to be able to buy 13 Charles Street down in Greenwich Village. You know, I mean, they, they, he couldn't walk in there. I don't care how much money he had. And the people in the neighborhood were not very welcoming of him or of this interracial couple. In the Bohemian Village in the 1940s. In the Bohemian yeah. Village. So you have to realize that, you know, in the Bohemian Village, we get all of these fairy tales about what Bohemia is. Bohemia was as racist as the rest of America. Let's not fool ourselves. It was 1945, and I was making a rumpus in the house, and I was being very noisy. That's Julia Wright, Richard Wright's older daughter. She remembers clearly one incident from when she was about three years old. Her father was downstairs trying to write, so a friend offered to help out. She said, I'll, I'll take her off your hands, Dick. Um, just, just write, I'll take her for a walk. And the walk took us to Fifth Avenue to Bergdorf Goodman, and uh, she got involved in looking at some beautiful clothes there. And all I wanted to <laughs> to do was go to the toilet. So she said, oh, okay, let's go and ask where the toilet is. And the uh, sales girl saw this uh, young white woman asking her for the toilet and pointed the way. But when the saleswoman saw the white woman walk away from the counter with a little black girl, she hysterically shouted, Oh, no, the toilet's for you, but not for that one. And so I was taken out on Fifth Avenue and said I would be a, a told I would be a very good little girl if... I just uh, urinated in the midst of the crowd. And I got an ice cream for being so good. And when the young woman went back and told my father about it, that is my first memory. The sound of his... It's like a... It's like a scream of an animal... And I'm standing in front of a white wall in the next room, and I hear my father shouting in anger. And I'm hearing bigger. That's one of the reasons why he left. Richard Wright's native son is today's episode of American Icons. Up next this hour, Bigger Thomas lives and dies again as Biggie Small. Ready, ready. 
you live through these violent fantasies as a way of rebelling against the sterility and the stasis of middle America white culture. I'm ready. As I grab the put it to your headpiece. Original gangster and native son, that's ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. This hour of Studio 360's American Icons, we're looking at Native Son, Richard Wright's 1940 novel that takes place on the south side of Chicago. Beautiful and powerful Chicago, city of the big shoulders. Her tall skyscrapers make her a jewel among the cities of the earth. When Richard Wright set Native Son there, the south side had been transformed by the great migration of blacks from the south. Here is Chicago's Black Belt, a prison without bars. Here behind an invisible color line live almost a half a million black people. See those houses? A generation ago, whites used to inhabit them, but now they're crowded with black people. Now you're going all the way over to the lakefront now. Lake Park is at Main Street. I took a tour of the South Side with Harold Lucas, a neighborhood booster who started a visitor center here for tourists. But take a left turn here. That's the lakefront right there. Where Bigger supposedly lived was nearby. Harold grew up in the 1960s when gangs dominated. This used to be the bucket of blood. In my teen years, this is where the Blackstone Rangers were. Right. Right? No, I remember when I visited here, that we, we you didn't come, uh, over, didn't come here. over here. Oh, no, because no, they, were, they were shooting all kinds yeah. of ways. All yeah. right? Back when Bigger Thomas lived here on the south side of Chicago, there were restrictive racial covenants, regulations forbidding African Americans from buying or renting in some of the neighborhoods. The legacy of that is that there are still very poor neighborhoods sandwiched between well-kept streets of big, beautiful old houses. And this is the president's house right up here. You see the bulkheads here, and then that's the actual Secret Service. They will arrest you if you come anywhere near (laughs) here. At one point, as we drove, we we found ourselves stopped by people wearing luminescent vests directing traffic. He's saying we can't come out this way. Can't get through there, huh? That's because the school is let now. Turns out it's part of a program called Safe Passage put in place a few years ago. You have four different schools of different economic class converging on this corner. To, to get home. Uh-huh. Kids were getting shot because they were crossing gang lines on their way to and from school. If there's not these guys out here and possibly police here, they're subject to start a fight right on this court. But these kids have no sense of where they are. This is the left turn right here. The combustible clash of race and privilege. In some ways, the South Side hasn't changed all that much since Richard Wright wrote Native Son. Richard Wright's impetus for writing this novel was not so that audiences could feel empathy for Bigger Thomas. Screenwriter Richard Wesley. What he wanted was for the audience to understand the conditions that had created a Bigger Thomas. They were looking at the bones of Mary's body. Without its making a clear picture in his mind, he understood how it had happened. After Bigger suffocated Mary Dalton, he disposed of her body in the furnace. But some of her remains were found by the detectives. The red glare of the fire lit their faces and the draft of the furnace drummed. Yes, he would go now. He tiptoed to the rear of the furnace and stopped, listening. 
the men were whispering in tense tones of horror. It's the girl. Good God. Who do you suppose did this? Bigger Thomas had killed, but at this point in Native Son, we still see him as a tragic victim, an unlucky kid in the wrong place at the wrong time. But sympathy really isn't what Richard Wright is after. I'm scared, Bigger. Keep still, Bessie. Pretty soon they'll be after me, maybe. And I ain't gonna let them catch me, see? You're gonna do what I say. That is 40-year-old Richard Wright himself in a screen test. In 1948, he auditioned and got the role of Bigger Thomas in the first film adaptation of Native Son. Now listen, Bessie. Please, Bigger, don't do this to me. Bessie, I can stop it all right now. If you scream, I'll have to kill you, so help me God. Bigger's girlfriend, Bessie, suspects that it's Bigger who murdered the white girl. So, Bigger kills again, murdering Bessie to keep her quiet. It's this second killing that really makes him unforgivable. But in the 1986 film version, the one with Matt Dillon and Elizabeth McGovern and Oprah Winfrey, this murder doesn't happen. One of the actually shocking moments in the novel is when Bigger kills his girlfriend, Bessie. Bessie. One of the shocking things in the movie for me was when he doesn't kill his girlfriend, Bessie. How did, how did that not make its way into the film? Oh, boy. That was a real test for everyone. Richard Wesley, who wrote that film version of Native Son. It led to a huge debate among the filmmakers. You had written the scene. I had written the scene. But the morning that the scene was supposed to be shot, the producer said no. And the reason for that was her real concern, and she voiced it. If you shoot this scene and it goes into the movie, the audience will hate bigger and will lose them for the uh, rest of the motion picture. Your protagonist goes from an accidental murder that everyone could kind of make some sort of allowance for. Of Mary. Yeah, the murder of Mary. And then, uh, you know, you turn right around and uh, have him deliberately commit a murder. I mean, a forethought. I mean, you're standing there. Bessie, I can't leave you behind and I can't take you with me. Then he picks up the biggest brick he can find and he bashes her head in. You know, you know, (laughs) wow, whoa, (laughs) you know, wait, wait a minute. There's no way you can rationalize that. But five years later, there was an audience that was perfectly prepared. Right. Uh, to do exactly what Richard Wright wanted, and that was rationalize these things. Yeah. What was five years later? Gangster rap. And black gangster movies like Menace to Society, Boys in the Hood, and New Jack City. The track we're listening to is off of Ready to Die, the debut album by the notorious B.I.G., also known as Biggie Smalls. I'm ready. As I grab the put it to your headpiece, one in the chamber, the safety is off, release Ready to Die was an instant classic in every sense of the word. It captures West Coast gangster rap. It has the violence, it has the misogyny, 
And then it gives you all that you need from New York, which is the panache, the sort of aspirational stylistics. Professor James Peterson from Lehigh University wrote The Hate You Gave, a look at the bigger Thomas figures in hip-hop culture. What I'm really getting at here is that you can look at a cross-section of hip-hop artists where the narrators of these rap lyrics are engaged in comparable, if not similar, situations that Bigger Thomas was engaged in, and they act out violently in response to those situations. As I sit back and look when I used to be a crook doing whatever it took from snatching chains to pocketbooks, a big bad What Biggie Smalls does is he brings the Bigger Thomas figure to life for 1990s America. He brings it to life. My mother didn't give me what I want, but the... The response to Bigger Thomas was no less sensational than the response to young white boys who listen to gangster rap. It is a sort of modified form of black exploitation, right? In the sense that you live through these violent fantasies as a way of rebelling against the sterility and the stasis of middle America white culture. In his essay, Professor Peterson argues that the inner cities in which a lot of the rappers grew up are not all that different from Bigger's world. The poverty and the dead ends, economically and socially, remain. Bigger Thomas was produced by the society that we live in. To the extent that people understand that, yes, there are behaviors that are bad and we want to correct those or we want to punish people who behave badly in our society, but we cannot exonerate our society from producing the conditions out of which those bad behaviors gestate and are manifest. And that's the argument made in the novel by Bigger Thomas's lawyer, Boris Max. Bigger is guilty, but before sentencing him, Max says, the court should consider the conditions that helped land him in prison. There was no day for him now, and there was no night. There was but a long stretch of time. A long stretch of time that was very short. And then, the end. Toward no one in the world did he feel any fear now, for he knew that fear was useless. And toward no one in the world did he feel any hate now, for he knew that hate would not help him. Though they carried him from one police station to another, though they threatened him, persuaded him, bullied him, and stormed at him, he steadfastly refused to speak. Most of the time he sat with bowed head, staring at the floor, or he lay full length upon his stomach his face buried in the crook of an elbow. Just as he lay now, upon a cot, with pale yellow sunshine of a February sky, falling obliquely upon him through the cold steel bars of the 11th Street Police Station. When I read the book, I was incarcerated. I was locked up uh, serving time for armed robbery. 
Today, Nathan McCall teaches at Emory University and recently published a novel called Them about gentrification in Atlanta. But he's best known for his memoir, Makes Me Want to Holler. It is about being drawn into gang culture when he was a teenager in the 1970s and 80s. You know, I got into trouble as a juvenile. I think I got first got caught shoplifting at age 12. And from then on, I was doing things. I just wasn't getting caught. You know, I was getting in trouble in school for fighting and other things. And so everything was building up to me developing the capacity for violence. And I remember coming to the conclusion that I could kill. And it was a very powerful feeling for me, especially given the fact that I was sort of consumed by this sense that as a black man, I would be powerless in this world. I had never felt anything so powerful as carrying a gun. And once McCall was carrying a gun, it was just a matter of time before he'd use it. When he was 19, he shot a guy from a rival gang. You know, when I shot that guy, you know, I remember for a fraction of a second, I was going to shoot him again. The bullet barely missed his heart. And I shot him out of fear. And I think I was going to shoot him again out of fear. Because if I didn't shoot him, he and his... You know, the guys he was with, I knew they were all going to jump me and uh, that I might not survive that. And so when I read Bigger Thomas, I was very clear in my understanding about how fear can drive a person to do just unspeakable acts. When, you know, I went through school, you know, we read Tom Sawyer, we read... Jane Eyre, you know, the regular fair, all of what they call the classics that I just could not relate to. So when I read this book, I was just I was just mesmerized and I cried when I finished reading it because I felt like this was someone who had um who had gotten in my own head on the deepest levels in a way that no one had ever done. And I had always felt that no one understood. Whenever my parents tried to talk with me, I just felt that there was no way they could understand. No one understood what I was feeling inside. I didn't even understand what I was feeling inside. And when I read Native Son, it was clear to me that Richard Wright understood what I was feeling inside. Coming up, a teacher tries to show a young black man of a new generation what Bigger Thomas went through. I said to him, all right, stand still. still. I sat down on the floor. I put my arms around one of his knees. And I said, now walk. now walk. I said, I'm heavy. I'm 165. I'm 165. Begin to carry me across this room and say your lines as you are walking. 
I'm Kurt Anderson, and you are listening to Studio 360's American Icon from PRI and WNYC. In this hour of Studio 360's American Icons, we're looking at Native Son, an instant classic that shocked readers when it was published and made its author an international star. Our next speaker is a young American who captured the heart of Paris the day he arrived and who went right on capturing it. Richard Wright, writer and playwright, came to France in 1946 at the invitation of the French government. Greetings from American artists who live in France and special greetings to those American artists who live in Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Greenwich Village. I wish it were in my power to... When World War II ended, Richard Wright left New York for Paris and never moved back to the United States. Wright himself was a native son, but with his literary stardom in the 1940s, he had choices. As one biographer put it, in Paris, he could forget for hours at a time that he was black. Men are not prejudged here on the basis of their skin color or nationality. And I have never heard a Frenchman tell anybody to go back where you came from. The ethnic tolerance of the French is debatable, but the late 40s were definitely a great time to be black in Paris. Other American writers followed Wright's lead, Chester Himes, James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison. But relations between those writers were not easy. Almost as soon as Wright was acclaimed as the black writer, his younger peers started speaking out against his influence, including his close friend, Ralph Ellison. When Ellison won the National Book Award for Invisible Man in 1953, he used his speech to complain about the limitations of the protest novel and pretty much push Native Son over a cliff. Ellison's speech is read here by Terrence McKnight. When I examined the rather rigid concepts of reality, which informed a number of the works which impressed me and to which I owed a great deal, he starts out diplomatically. I was forced to conclude that for me and for so many hundreds of thousands of Americans, reality was simply far more mysterious and uncertain, and at the same time, more exciting, and still, despite its raw violence and capriciousness, more promising. Sticking to ugly realism wasn't the only way to go. Ellison wanted literature to imagine a way out. I was forced to conceive of a novel, unburdened by the narrow naturalism which has led, after so many triumphs, to the final and unrelieved despair which marks so much of our current fiction. And that's it. The despair. There is no hope in Native Son. There's no way out for bigger but the electric chair. Here's University of Florida professor Trish Travis. I think that Baldwin and Ellison, because of the work that Wright did in breaking with the tradition of Uncle Tom, have a much easier time making the kinds of innovations that they want to make in their writing. Their debt to Wright is measured by their resentment of him. Even today, there are African-American writers who resent the long shadow of Native Son. It's a, it's a fascinating book. It's interesting to read. Novelist and USC professor Percival Everett. But the exploitation of this character as a representation of black youth was mercenary. Wright knew all too well who would be buying the books and how the book would be marketed. Now, that doesn't make him a bad man, um, but it does indict him along with his publishers and editors. 
That's a serious charge to lay on a classic. Everett published a takedown of Native Son, a book called Erasure, a novel. I didn't start the book thinking, I'm going to retell Native Son, but I ended up retelling Native Son. Everett's book is complicated, a a novel within a novel and a biting satire of the publishing world, celebrity culture, academia, you name it. It also mocks the stereotype of the young black thug and how deeply that image has lodged in the popular imagination since Native Son. The problem, of course, is that nothing else existed expressing any other experience. Right. And I don't mean a different black experience because there is no such thing as a black experience. That's the myth that the publishing world and America would have us believe in, is that you can um, reduce the experience of an entire people to one. When Richard Wright writes uh, Native Son and immediately it was embraced by white audiences, why did white America love it, do you think? Well, the, the sort of simplistic, gross reason would be why did they like seeing Step and Fetch It in the movies with Shirley Temple? Why did audiences Because love he's happy and nice and makes them feel good, <laughs> unlike Bigger Thomas. <laughs> but he feeds the stereotypes. It's because you don't have to do any work. Oh, yes, that's exactly what I thought. Uh-huh. It's an excuse, a reason, a justification for the feelings that you might have of, of fear and loathing of a Bigger Thomas. The book Native Son is our subject today in Studio 360's series on American icons. When I was growing up, I loved books, and I loved literature, and I loved art, and I wanted to be a good student. Writer and performer Carl Hancock Rux. So it was hard for me at the time to read a book that I couldn't wrap my mind around ethically. I didn't understand what the point was. You know, I, I remember asking my teacher, you know, why did he throw this white woman in an incinerator. You know, like, what? Like, that's horrible. That's a terrible thing. And I kept waiting (laughs) for there to be some reason for me to care. Should I? Yes, should I now go out? And uh, is this giving me permission to go kill white women? Is that what we're supposed to be doing now? And and of course, my my beloved teacher, you know, (laughs) who I love dearly, you know, who's this lovely white woman, you know, and, and, and I just didn't, I did not have a radical mind. So I didn't understand it. And I don't know that she was able to explain it except to try to get us to understand, like, you know, well, why do you think Bigger did this? Or why do you think he was angry? Or well, how did Bigger find himself in trouble? Or, But I don't remember the conversation really going anywhere that created an aha for me at the time. Should Native Son be on high school syllabi? Should, should, should kids be assigned <laughs> to read it? Is this a trick question? Oh, man, this is, so this is a tough question. Professor James Braxton Peterson is director of Africana Studies at Lehigh University. Let me say this first. I don't teach Native Son in college classes. Hmm. And part of the reason why is I like to deal with gender issues and gender violence in my classes and as many classes as I can. And for me, it's very, very difficult to to use Richard Wright's Native Son to do that productively. So I personally don't teach it. Now, in addition to being a professor, I consult a lot with public education systems. In fact, I I consult with a a public educational system in inner city Chicago. 
and they teach Native Son. And in some situations, you'll have white women teaching Native Son to classes that are predominantly black with a lot of young black men in it. And That sounds I, like the basis I, for a satire. It's It <laughs> sounds like the basis for a satire. Um, but I think it can be a time bomb in a high school classroom. And if it's being taught in a college classroom or a high school classroom and you're the only black student in there and you're a male, especially reading of of Native Son is going to be problematic. I can remember when we had to read Huck Finn aloud in my high school classroom and and through through ABC, I was able to go to a predominantly white, very, very good high school. And the experience of reading Huck Finn aloud in a classroom where I was the only black student was an excruciating experience. And so I think teachers have to be mindful of that, that one, Richard Wright is a very, very compelling writer that Bigger Thomas is pound for pound one of the most compelling characters ever written in American letters. And when you introduce that into a classroom, you you have to... You don't have to be me to teach it, but you need you need someone who is an expert about these kinds of issues to introduce this kind of text into either a high school or college classroom. With its unremitting violence and bleakness, is it really possible Native Son might do more harm than good when it's being taught to teenagers today? They were carrying the books around, and I thought, you guys seem to really like that book. And they said, oh, it's one of the best books I've ever read. This is white and black students. That is Angela Tomaselli. She's the theater director at Stiver's School for the Arts in Dayton, Ohio. She's African-American, and most of her students are, too. And I said, wow, what do you think? I remember reading the play in college. Should we do that as a play? And they said, yeah. Then over Christmas break, I started reading the book, and I, I thought, wow, they're reading this in high school. That's really deep. But I also know the type of movies the students see and what they see on TV. It's not that different. Tomaselli agreed to put on Native Son. The play is easier than the novel. It makes Bigger a little more likable. But what's it like for these students, hopeful, ambitious kids born at the turn of the 21st century, to deal with the world of Native Son? Okay, so listen carefully. And I always put things... Oh, my guys. My black guys were walking on like, oh, hi, nice day. I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? Uh, this, this ain't my job, Miss Dalton. You are in the black belt. You are oppressed. You can't get a job. You have rats in your apartment. I don't. I don't hate. It's not something that I do. So, like, she was, wants me to be this raw, evil character. I was like, okay, Eric, you can do this. You can do this. Wait, like, say it, boy. Say it. Bigger. Take it back. Say I'm a lying bastard. So I gotta dig deep down. I gotta hate her because one person I really hate, I hate Justin Bieber. I don't see why he's saying this. I don't get it. So every time I think about somebody I have to hate, image of him pops in my head, and I go from there. Look, you can go to hell. I had enough of you big enough, you hear me? Look, make me. They just all of a sudden see, oh, we have a black president. No, that didn't just happen overnight. That's something people died and fought for us all. Unlike the young people in the book, the Stivers High kids in Dayton have a future. So Tomaselli found herself spending a lot of time explaining to her students what it was like to grow up black back in the 1930s. Bigger, I felt your beginning, scene one, I thought you were not, you weren't my hard enough character. I felt you were a little soft. I said to him, all right, stand still. I sat down on the floor. I put my arms around one of his knees and I said, now walk. And he looked at me like I'd lost my mind. I said, now walk. I said, I'm heavy, I'm 165. 
begin to carry me across this room and walk and say your lines as you were walking. And he started very slowly, struggling with it. And I said, now I believe your movement, but I don't believe your words. Embrace exactly what I'm talking about. Put that into your movements. And he began to drag me across the floor slowly. I said, that's what you are carrying with you. Damn all of you now. You can all go to hell. I said, okay, do you get it? Yes, ma'am, I have it. And I must say that was the beginning of him beginning to get the heaviness of the character. And I'm through with all you cheesy little punks now. Don't ask me for time to die. At Stiver's School for the Arts, cheerful diversity rules. Reading Native Son wasn't traumatic for them. It was about trying to get into character. Um, I'm excited, actually. I don't know. I've always wanted to do something different, and being killed is definitely being something different. But um, <laughs> my big challenge is staying still and not breathing so hard after I'm supposed to be dead because um, I tend to stiffen up. And uh, I've been trying to work on my breathing, actually, for when I die and just being, practicing being limp. When I got her in my arms, yeah. I'm like, what? What do, I, what do I do? Like I, I haven't seen hate come into play yet. And now that she's passed out, that hatred can show. Sullen, angry, ignorant. I want the audience to leave thinking like, wow, that was deep. Our goal is to make this the best show yet. To amaze them. All right, and my announcement is, where do you guys want to go Ooh, for yes. the cast? Wait, wait, wait. Due to the fact that I sent every single one of you a text message, and only three people respond. It will be between B-dubs, Frickers, Stick and Shake, and Applebee's. Then, after months of rehearsals and trying to understand the story and its characters and the late nights and set building... My name is Angela Tomaselli, and I'm the theater director... Finally, it was opening night. Angela Tomaselli sends out Eric McAllister and the other students to perform Native Son. My dad, uh, <laughs> he doesn't know what to think because my dad, he's a big church fellow. So he's like, you're going to be cussing? I was like, yes, sir. You're going to be talking about God? Yes, sir. He was like, well, all right, Eric. Oh, gosh. Oh, Eric's dad, bless his heart. At the end of the show, the last, I believe his dad came to the final night. I felt like a man, Mr. Max. I was a man. His dad was just visibly shaken. In a good way. And he just kept saying, I didn't know my son had that in him. It, it gives me chills when I think about it. I didn't know he had that in him. Times I tried to forget them, but I couldn't. They wouldn't let me. 
Bigger's eyes were wide and unseeing. His voice rushed on. Mr. Max, I didn't mean to do what I did. I was trying to do something else, but it seems like I never could. I was always wanting something, and I was feeling that nobody would let me have it. So I fought him. I thought they was hard, and I acted hard. He paused. Then, whimpered in confession. But I ain't hard, Mr. Max. I ain't hard even a little bit. If if a young person comes up to you today and says, Professor, why is Native Son relevant, what would you say? I would tell them, young man, I want you to observe how Americans talk about people who are outlaws. Jerry Ward from Dillard University in New Orleans. Bigger Thomas has become a part of our cultural literacy. He doesn't exist in that book anymore. He has escaped from the book. He's become kind of shorthand for what you don't explain fully. He is now that dreadful figure at once repulsive but also attractive. He is um, the kind of guy, if you saw him in the neighborhood and he had a hood on, you shoot him in the back. This Hour of American Icons was produced for Studio 360 by Amanda Aronchik and edited by David Krasnow. Excerpts from Native Son were read by Jamie Hector. Special thanks to John Delore, Posey Gruner, Anne Hepperman, Andy Lancet, and Eileen LeBlanc. We first aired this hour in 2013. Angela Tomaselli is now the theater director at Charlotte Christian School. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI. Public Radio International. Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, the calculus of assigning a movie a rating. Two F-bombs would get you into an R. Uh, you could have one and a 13 for sure, but the, uh, the second one, you know, the F-bomb would have to be mentioned a, a distance away from each other. Former Hollywood movie rater Howard Fridkin, next time in Studio 360.